0: you found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds you so very well. I'm speaking to you from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Absolutely delighted to have this opportunity to introduce all of you to Kate Vosti, a native of San Francisco, who will be speaking to us today from Kailua, Hawaii. Kate is, some, is a somatic movement facilitator whose mission is to offer a unique therapeutic experience using non-sexual sensuality to move and repurpose grief, reconnect to joy and pleasure, and claim authentic expression and confidence. Her work is grounded in a master's in leadership studies, graduate-level psychosomatic education, dance and movement, medicine, and Buddhist philosophy. And Kate is also an admirable role model for grief and rebirth. Even though her life has been filled with support and opportunities, she's lived through indescribable physical and emotional pain. She had spinal fusion surgery for scoliosis when she was 17 years old, and continues to have repercussions today, so she is challenged to love her body and accept its limitations every single day. And there is also the time she calls the apocalypse, when her home in Napa burned down and her father died 11 days later. Kate's journey through profound grief has brought her closer to the true essence of love, and it has inspired her to help others. She now firmly believes that we go through challenges to learn how to overcome them so that we can help others who are also suffering. I'm looking forward to talking with Kate about the way somatic therapy is different from talk therapy, why she believes that the way to happiness is through contributing to others' happiness, how meditation and Buddha have changed the ways she responds to life, how dance and movement therapy provide an effective way to process grief And so much more for a sure-to-be fascinating interview.
1: Hi, Kate. A warm, heartfelt welcome to Grief and Rebirth Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So interesting always hearing, you know, your story reflected back and (laughs) processing it. (laughs) Right? You're saying,
0: oh, that's why I'm doing all these things that I'm doing, right? Very, Very admirable what you have been through, my goodness. And, and you have such a beautiful education and all. I think everyone's really going to enjoy hearing what you have to say and learn a lot from it. So let's start. Let's tell them about Kate as a child. Let's start with this one. There was a young Kate who struggled with feeling affectionate and caring and was also overwhelmed by rage and aggression. And you felt misunderstood by others and by yourself. Who was
1: this Kate? What was this story about? Yeah, gosh, you know, it's, (laughs) I love that you start with this question because to be honest with all my clients through talk, you know, therapy, I'm like, you know, we could do a lot of healing if we all just went right back to what was going on in our childhood (laughs) because it imprints everything <laughs> informs everything in our adult life and so to be able to talk about and even hearing those words you reflect i remember writing those and sharing those words with you and being like oof yeah there's that little part of you that you know your inner child that goes ouch i was in so much pain you know and like oof that was true um so who who was i then what was going um, on what was what was what going on in your life, life? you know it's been a bit of a predicament um, in my own d- development in the sense that I've always had a really good life. I've had, I'm an only child. I had the most amazing parents. I've been best friends with both of my parents my whole life. Um, and I'll tell you, so, so in most grief interviews, I, I actually start with childhood because I say, you know, grief, it's such a range And we mostly, we think of grief as, oh, only happens when someone we love dies. It's around death, grief and death. But grief is just such a huge spectrum. And so I really like to start with childhood and share that. So my parents divorced when I was only two years old. And so a big part of our development actually happens, our hardwiring happens from the time we're born. Up until about three years old and we're like little sponges, you know, we really absorb um, everything going on around us. And so what was happening was my mom was grieving a huge loss and, you know, my dad blindsided her in the divorce. They were together for 12 years. And then he just one day decided he didn't want to be married anymore. And she had this nine month old baby and this beautiful life. And it just evaporated. Yeah. And so it imprinted in me this deep sadness and, and rage and grief that I realized as I've gotten older are not actually mine. And I think, you know, and if I say this, and maybe it brings up something for you as the listener, Um, you know, like this is something that we all experience, right? We're all kind of imprinted with what was happening in our parents, our caretakers' lives. And so not fully understanding that experience of myself, but also of my mother and my father, um, that, uh, impacted me so much that I was, I was very socially awkward. I had such a hard time with groups. Um, and I just felt very, like I said in there, misunderstood. And I would get kind of this like rage and impulse. And I would just like, I had all this energy, which we'll get to (laughs) now of what I, (laughs) what I repurposed and did with it. Um, but I had all this energy, all these emotions that I had no idea what to do with. And it would come out in these very kind of aggressive ways. And then I kind of had this polarity of, cause I'm a cancer. And so I'm, I love animals and I love, you know, pink and I love soft things and I love people and connection and all these wonderful things. And and yet, so there is this kind of polarity that existed within within me that had always just really um, was difficult to, I think, for other people to understand, much less myself. And so I was like, oh, Kate's so sweet and kind. And then, whoa, like <laughs> there's this whole other piece. Part. Well, you know, it occurs to me as I'm talking to you.
0: Your father left your mother when you were nine months old, you might have been breastfeeding feeding or whatever. And she's holding you and you're taking in her emotion, her rage, her anger, her hurt. I mean, you're porous. So you, so you were taking all of that in. Exactly. Very, very, very confusing for you.
1: Exactly. and On an unconscious level. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You get it. So, because we're watching, we're, you know, little sponges and we're watching facial expression. And if we have someone that's, and we're also such sensorial beings, which is what Mm -hmm. I'll also be talking Mm -hmm. about. And, you know, we're watching facial expressions. And if that is not matching this felt sense of energy, it's very confusing. It's like, you know, if someone's smiling and it's just like, but they're really actually, their energy is saying, it's like I'm reading. devastated. I'm right. devastated. My life is over. You know, it's just, it's like, right. And so that's something we get to kind of take into consideration. Yeah.
0: Wow. Wow. So, wow. wow. <laughs> right. So, <out> the- <laughs> and I'm sure there's a whole story about your dad. And uh, I'm sure one day he explained things to you and all of that. And it sounds like you were very close to him, but he, when he was dying, you kept repeating to yourself, choose love instead of fear. And you had a miracle that woke you up and taught you that love is the foundation for everything. So that's another formative moment in your life. You want to tell us about that?
1: Yeah, I would say that was the most pivotal moment of my life, of my 32 years thus far. And, um, and I will say, you know, my dad was the married and divorced four times kind of guy and you know, that's his, that was his path, but he was a really good man and supported my mom and I, you know, was there 100%. Like he's a really, really good man. He just couldn't be married, but you know, so that was my mom and his process, but he, as a father, he was absolutely incredible. And so we are best friends. He would always say we're kindred spirits and we, we really, really were. And I ended up being his caretaker. Um, he was diagnosed with melanoma cancer and, um, for those that don't know that's skin cancer. And so once it gets underneath the skin, it's grows very, very quickly. And the, the tumors will grow it. They start on his brain and they would just grow very, very big, very, very quickly. And it's, it's, it's tough, and so That's I was very and heartbreaking. it wow. is, yeah, and he um he was so he started chemo and I moved home. I had just finished my first master's in leadership studies in San Diego, and then I moved back home to San Francisco um to take care of him, and it was about six months of the chemo, and you know, you just watch this big powerful strong you know person guider you know leader in your life just kind of wither you know chemo is just awful and and then to see with what the tumors were it was just it was a lot and so to watch that um happening and then of course um so this moment this moment this pivotal moment um this is where as you mentioned in my introduction, so Buddhism has been a big part of my life for 11 years. And what uh, what I love that Buddhism teaches is a lot about, um, is death and, and understanding the transitional process of when the consciousness transitions from the body to this other state called the bardo, which is this transitional place before reincarnation, rebirth. And so essentially, I had been doing a lot of practices that were all about the preparation, preparation of death for, well, you, for yourself, but you can see how you can also apply it to someone that yes. you love, and how to support them. And my dad was not a Buddhist. He called himself an out of practice Catholic. He was Irish, but you know, not religious, but spiritual. But um, I remember being at his bedside and I knew it was the last day because you start to notice certain things and this is textbook they talk about it and it's interesting how it's very true you start to watch certain things happen in the body they you'll start to see they their look they start looking around the room kind of like they're not really there anymore you know like maybe they're seeing something else um he couldn't swallow anymore there was a gurgling you know there's like these different types of things that the body um will go through When it's starting to be towards the end, and so he was going through all of them. So I remember sitting there next to him, and I was I was listening to a recording of one of my favorite Buddhist uh, conversations, and it was talking about the transition of consciousness out of the body and what happens at that period. And so, what is what is believed is that the consciousness can see, feel, and hear everything still going on in the room. But they can feel it nine times more than what everyone is experiencing. And so, when the, when other people are in the room, they are feeling, you know, rage or they're feeling terror or they're feeling, you know, anything like that. The consciousness is going to feel that like, you know, extremely more, and it's going to uh, interfere with their transition. So if they're so feeling, they're
0: picking up the vibration from other people in the room around them as life. they're dying, their everything
1: is heightened like that. Wow. Once, Great. once they've left the, so once the, the body is dead and the consciousness has left the body and it's it's still feeling that you know so because they're kind transition. of you know, here yeah <laughs> they're kind of you know in the the room and so they're feeling that and so that can risk a like a bad rebirth, you know, if they're feeling a lot of anger or rage or something like that, those are all qualities, frequencies that risk our consciousness, our souls, whatever you, you know, believe in to go some, not have a good rebirth or go to a hell realm or, you know, something, something like that. And so after I heard that, I said, okay, so the most helpful thing I can do for my father in this moment of transition, is to feel as much love as possible. So if he really can feel me, whether this is true or not, doesn't matter, whether he can feel me or not, he would be feeling love. And so I I just, you know, you know it's like that conviction, right? Of like, okay, this is the moment, I call it the moment that matters, right? This is the moment that matters the most when I have a choice to feel what I'm made of. And so as I, so then seeing him lying there dead, which is just this like heart stopping, you know, everyone hearing this, listening to this knows like that surreal moment of finality when you're like, oh my gosh, (sighs) there's this choice that I made in that moment to just, and I kind of just stepped back while everyone kind of went over and was like checking his, you know, pulse. I just kind of stepped back and. And he was at home too. We were in a hospital. And um, I remember just like opening up my heart and just feeling the most selfless love I possibly could, because Buddhists also talk about attachment a lot, right? And so if we're sitting there, we're like, no, no, come back, come back, please, please, I miss you. Don't leave me, don't leave me. The consciousness that's already trying to transition is gonna be like, oh, and kind of like stuck you know, here and not be able to transition. And so they also talk about the quality of attachment. So I knew in that moment, I just kept saying, calm heart, calm heart, calm heart. It's okay, dad. I love you. It's okay. You can go. It's okay. And just kept repeating that to myself and calming my heart. And that was my experience. And I remember my mom came out of the room and she was in. There was some complications with the, the way that he died and whatnot, but she came out of the room and she's like, I am so furious. And I was like, it's okay. And I remember just hugging her and holding her and just being like, it's okay. It's okay. And like calming her and being like, okay, we're creating a loving space. It is what it is. This is the reality of the moment. How can we choose love? How can we choose love? If it, if it helps dad at all, how can we choose love? So that was my moment. Wow wow and you had peace as your father yeah yeah and and I'll say just kind of and the reason why that then became continued to be so powerful is so our our home my dad's home in Napa luckily we were supposed to be there that weekend luckily we weren't because we would have died it was so quick and happened in the middle of the night it was the 2017 Napa fires and um so our, our house had burned down and then so this was 11 days later that my dad died and then two days later we went up my mom and I went up to the property for the first time and it was you know just like covered in rubble right it looks like Pompeii it's just like it's just it's un, it's surreal again another very surreal thing and you know my parents got married you had a loss. so now you've had two losses you lost your home and you lost right? your dad Within so, 13 days be each. I, I mean my dad oh, was at home. This was like his, you know, he built it himself. My parents yeah. got married there. Like it this was something that was in our family for so long. And so we I was walking and something caught my eye. It was, you know, just like the foundation of the house. And you know, again, like my dad built it. And so and something caught the corner of my eye in the like cement that was left that was part of the foundation I kind of brushed some of the ash aside and in the foundation of the cement was the word love just carved into the foundation of the house and I remember this moment I was like well I didn't do that as a little I was 10 years old when the house was built. I was like I didn't do that and I know my dad certainly didn't do that. He wasn't the kind of guy that would write love in the cement. And I don't think any of the contractors or cement pourers would write that in there. I'm like, what a where did it come from? And so regardless, even if there is some explanation, it felt like in that moment, it was my dad being like, I hear you. I heard you. And thank you. Thank you. What for a beautiful
0: story. Oh, what a beautiful, wonderful, miraculous story. <laughs> Wow. So this, so these losses in a way led you home to yourself, which is about love. Yeah. And why do you believe then that the, and it brought you to the conclusion that the way to happiness is through contributing to others' happiness. Why did that lead you to that conclusion? how did you find yourself <laughs> feeling and knowing
1: that? Right. Um, well, again, Buddhism um and you know the Dalai Lama he talks a lot about if you want to experience happiness contribute to others happiness and in the the fog of grief that we all know so well you know and when everything you know you feel like you're living in an alternate reality everything is just fog it's just nothing makes sense nothing e- feels meaningful, right? It's almost, there's this meaninglessness, right? When we're faced with death and all these things we are like, what is the meaning of life? Like, what's the point? And I remember asking myself at 27 that so much, I just finished a master's program, but I was kind of like, well, I, I don't know what I want to do. I'm just so lost. You must've been in such limbo. Yeah. Like, I was, it, it, <laughs> That's everything that was happening to you. Right. Cause my dad was, you know, such a big part of my life at 27. And I know that, you know, and not necessarily a lot of people have, but I was there for every moment and we were kindred spirits. And I felt like a part of myself had just was just gone. And I didn't understand. And this meaninglessness was just overcoming me. And I remember this kind of this voice that's at some point during the fog kind of saying like, find your wound, find your purpose. Mm. And I'm like, okay. And then through that kind of this, like, Kate, like you are going through all of these things in, or like the meaning of life, not just Kate's to but meaning of life in general to go through these things to figure out how to overcome them so that you can help others who are also going through it because we are never alone in our suffering. Everyone is suffering. And one of the most you know, poignant things about grief is the isolation and loneliness. But the truth is, is like, we are all going through this. We all lose people we love, you know? And so-
0: We think we're singular, but we're not. Other people are all going through iterations right of what we go through and some a lot even a lot worse god forbid but it's a fact and i want to ask you you call you say you had a wound you had a wound of painful judgment (laughs) and a refusal of self-acceptance and so this changed you also
1: you want to tell us about that yeah sure let's go into I love it let's just do it um yeah, you know, I mean, I'm going to be honest and say, like, you know, who who doesn't have a lot of self-judgment, right? I mean, you know? but, but the, was <laughs> this taking place before you found love in the foundation? I yeah. mean, did
0: finding love in that foundation start to shift your perception about yourself? Were you starting to give yourself self-love and self-acceptance?
1: Yeah. Is that a pivotal um, moment with that? Yeah, I, well, I would say it wasn't actually... My self-love journey didn't happen at that moment. That was a little bit more of kind of like bigger love, you know, that there's, you know, spirit and matter and death and life and rebirth. And that was kind of the big like universal of like, whoa, love is the highest frequency. Love governs everything. The only thing that matters at the end of this life is love and how we can cultivate that f- vibrational frequency through us in so many, so many different ways. But then recognizing a few years after that, it was actually during quarantine, <laughs> <There's-> quarantine. <laughs> not that long ago, not that long ago during quarantine. Well, I will say I had been doing um, so when I was in my master's in leadership program in San Diego. I was also working with a compassion education program, um, teaching people about compassion, which of course includes self compassion. So I was doing a lot of compassion and self compassion work, uh, both corporately and I was infusing into the academic world because um, I was teaching as well as being a student. And so there was a lot of compassion 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 a lot of that things and then but then the real self love that i'm that i referred to in the in the questionnaire it happened really in quarantine when i recognized and kind of <laughs> how to complete yourself and it was actually really inspired from grief of exiting a relationship, but it was the first relationship I had gone through after my father's death. And so it brought up a lot of just the masculine, right? The masculine, like this archetypal masculine of safety and security and, you know, protection. And so when, you, when my father being the big security and protection and guidance, you know, in my life, has left and then, you know, noticing how it shows up in romantic partnership after that and kind of going, Oh, oh," and then that not working out. And then being like, you know, noticing within ourselves, wow, how am I going to do this? You know, how am I going to be with this? How, like, what is it going to take to truly love and love myself and take care of myself and show up for myself and not depend on someone else? Someone else. But not only that, if you're going to
0: become a healer, were you conscious of that yet? Because you can't really become a healer to others
1: unless you have self-love for yourself, right? Exactly. And you know what? Self-love is a journey, right? It's not a destination. We are constantly working at self-love. It is a practice. Even the Dalai Lama, even the Pope, even like whoever you want to put on a pedestal, everyone's working on loving themselves because there are just days we're just like, oh, we the okay, biggest well. critics in our own heads. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And I think, you know, to be a leader, teacher, educator, healer, therapist, you know, whatever you are, I think number one is to be able to admit that, you know, these things are a practice, but we have to embody them and be committed to them. Or else, you know, if we're just talking, talking and sharing this and telling our clients to it, and we're not living it ourselves, then you know you have to be a role model. That's not right? healing. Exactly. It's not right. healing. So no. I want I have a question. Please educate me
0: about you've got a graduate level psychosomatic education. Please define that. What issues does a psychosomatic education help to address? And then you're also a specialist in somatic therapy.
1: So how is that different from talk therapy? Yeah, yeah. These are great questions. Enlighten us. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm so excited about the somatic field because even though it's been around forever and once I describe it, you're going to go, oh, okay. It's just a fancy word for it. But so essentially, so psychosomatic therapy, dance movement therapy, what I was in graduate school for round two graduate school. This is, this is separate from my leadership program. Um, so somatic, the word somatic, the word soma, the soma just means body. It's a Greek word for body. So when you think of a talk there, I'll answer both of those questions in one, when you think of a talk therapy session, you know, you're sitting there and you guys are just, you're just talking, right? Oh, tell me about your feelings. Tell me about your childhood. Oh, how does that make you feel? You know, <laughs> and you're talking it up. Now, when we experience something traumatic or painful, and when I say traumatic, it doesn't necessarily have to be something horrific, like, you know, what you've endured, Irene, like that's, you know, on the high end of trauma, it can also be, you know, something like divorce, right? Divorce or breakup or, you know, something. Well, depending on who you're divorcing, that could be traumatic. Sure, sure. That (laughs) could be a brain bit itself. Absolutely. So basically, so trauma can be, you know, these small, sure. Yeah, big, huge thing. And so, but it all makes these imprints. And our nervous system is all here, right? Our nervous system is all around our body. And so, with talk therapy, we're really just kind of addressing it from a very cognitive, cerebral standpoint when this whole rest of the body experienced, went through that experience and the body actually evolved. You know, the gut evolved before the brain, the body is very, very intelligent. We've only really scratched the surface of the intelligence of the body. You know, the body has so many systems going on so many different things. It holds so much different types of energy, but we're in a very Cognitive celebrated society now, when we definitely used to not be, because we used to, you know, when we we're out being hunters and gatherers, we had to rely on very different senses. But now we're kind of live in the society where this is rewarded and celebrated. But so we're forgetting kind of this whole extraordinarily intelligent evolutionary aspect of our entire holistic being. And so, so you're talking about the body mind connection, right? Would you? Yeah, say- so- Yeah. Yeah. So that's psychosomatic is mind body connection, essentially. So we're bringing the body into the therapeutic conversation when, so in a talk therapy session, they go, oh, so how do you feel about that? In a somatic therapy session, they go, okay, let's close our eyes, breathe in. And when you bring up this memory, notice where in your body you feel it. Most people go, oh, you know, maybe I have like a tension in my chest. Or, oh, like a tightness in my stomach, or, or maybe I have pain back here. So then we would go into that part of the body and we would start to explore it a bit more with sens- when, with sensation, the body speaks, the body's language is sensation. So the body speaks through sensation. Maybe there's some symbology, maybe there's colors, maybe there's texture. So we're using a different type of language system, but what's so phenomenal about it, all my clients, I, I end up calling it accelerated healing, even though we're not going any faster. Faster. my clients always go, I've worked through more in an hour of therapy with you than I have in a year's worth of talk therapy, because the body has so much, it stores our emotions and our memories. And so when this energy, which is emotion, emotion is energy. These memories get trapped in our body. It causes all these other ailments, physical pain, hormonal imbalances, disease, disorder, all of these things most of them can be traced back to repressed emotions in the body. So a lot of people
0: not you know I'm not a I'm not a physician in any way but I would imagine that a lot of people who perhaps they have autoimmune d- diseases or different things going on in their bodies could be from repressed trauma at an earlier stage in their lives. Yes. And the body remembers.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And in addition to working, um, with people with grief, um, death grief, um, I work a lot, I've worked a lot, especially in my grad program with women who are survivors of sexual assault. And so a lot of my focus is around, uh, the pelvic bowl. So the womb, the cervix, you know, all these areas, the hip, the hips flexors and we store so many emotions in there, especially if the boundary has been violated and, and that's a whole other that's a type of grief, right? It's a total type of Absolutely. grief. So, so it's really, it's really fascinating how we can start using the body in these conversations with grief, because what really led me to this, it was my aha moment was after my father had passed, and maybe a year or so later, I remember seeing, and I was in talk therapy, I was in talk therapy for it, and I had a great counselor, I will say that, but, there was this workshop and it said, you know, come just move for a day, do some art therapy and just move to a live celloist. And I've been a dancer my whole life and, but I've never, I've only done technical dance. I've never done any type of, you know, kind of improvisational dance, but I was like, okay, this sounds kind of cool. So I went to it and to tell you, Irene, I processed more of my grief In that day, just moving to a live celloist than I did in all my talk therapy sessions. And that's when I said, this, this is is what I want to do for the rest of my life is help people to move through grief.
0: So is that what you call the distinction between sensuality and
1: sexuality? Ooh, we're getting spicy. I love it. Yes. (laughs) So
0: (laughs) So explain that to us, because I know that you help people to heal through sensuality so define that tell us about that and then you have an offering called sensual self-love so now everybody's really perking up to listen Kate so explain that
1: to us please (laughs) yes oh no these these are so great and I love talking about this because it's such an important distinction and um so in my grieving period Father, um, you know, health issues, even after a breakup, there have been times in my life that I wasn't sexually available, you know, I just had no desire to engage that way, Um, and and when I was working and I was going through a, a two year celibacy, um, when I was in grad school and I was working with these women who were survivor survivors of sexual assault and seeing kind of their inavailability based on what they had endured. The I, yeah, just, yeah, exactly. And I was just thinking, you know what, like being sexually available is a privilege and we go through phases of our life where we're not available for this. And we're not really talking about that enough. There's kind of this, especially if you're, you know, on Instagram and all these things, there's a lot of like sexual empowerment coach kind of influencer type thing going on. And I remember just kind of being flooded with that in my community and being like, uh oh, that's not where I'm at in life right now. Like I don't, connect with being a sexual being. But at the same time, I still was like, well, I still want to experience pleasure I, in, in a non-sexual way. I still feel very connected to myself sensorially. And so how can I still practice a sensuality, a sensorial Healing type experience for myself, but isn't anything inherently sexual. And especially because sensually, if you
0: talk about the somatic piece, Ah. you're, I would think, you're having,
1: you know, those feelings are signposts as you start to express yourself, right? Exactly. Exactly. These are all ways that we get to express ourselves and love ourselves. And one of the, you know, biggest things is, you know, we're asked, like, we're ne- or we're not asked, you know, how do you like to be touched even just like simply just like this, nothing sexual, just like how do like how often do we kind of just get this invitation to like place our hand over here and like comfort ourselves in these types of ways of like oh, okay, okay. And then adding kind of this layer on top which is moving from the somatic, which is sensorial to the kinetic kinetic, meaning movement of energy through the body as we move our bodies. And that's kind of the area, the graduation of this that I actually am moving into now is, is, is what I like to call kinetic body alchemy. And so this, it kind of started out as what I like to call non-sexual sensuality, but I've actually been able to find kind of more language for it because people associate sensuality so much with sex when really it's about liberating ourselves from having to be these, this pressure, performative pressure of being sexual and really just being like, how can I breathe? How can I, you know, ah, make sound? How can I touch my body? How can I move my hips and my spine in this way that, has nothing to do with sex, has nothing to do with performance. This is about moving stuck energy through the body. And that's what helped me so much with all my different types of grief is being like, okay, I need to move the stuck heavy out. through my body and out to be able to help myself to feel love, to feel pleasure, to feel safe to feel like I can trust myself because I know how to take care of myself. And then when we know how to create pleasure for ourselves, then our body feels trusting, it feels safe and it goes, okay, now we can go into those more painful points of like, ooh, because we're not going to get stuck in there, right? We don't do the deep work because we're afraid. If I go into that deep, dark hole, what if I never get out? And that's why a lot of people just don't even start but if we know how to relate to ourselves and take care of ourselves and regulate, regulate ourselves, then we can go in and get that garbage get out it. there. Now alcohol. do you process it? Do you process that garbage as it's leaving? Do you process it with talk therapy with people? How do you process <laughs> that? There is a whole, yeah, there's a whole technique that I do that I created myself. And um, essentially it's, it's taking different parts of Buddhist practices um, and visualization. I work a lot with like colors and light and visualization processes, allowing people to um, you know, like I mentioned before, color, texture, things like that, and helping it to literally imagine it leaving the body or moving the body in a certain way that allows it to release. And it is so effective. It every every single time I have a first session, I'm now doing in-person sessions now I moved to Hawaii, but most of my clients are virtual. But every time Wait, how do you work with them wow. virtually? So Oh and yeah. For movement and all that. And I know you also, um, have a
0: rebirth retreat. So tell us how you work with people online okay. with that. Tell
1: us about yeah. your retreat.
0: And then I have another good question for you.
1: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, virtually, so yeah, I mean, a lot of my work isn't hands-on, so I'm not, I don't consider myself like an energy healer. Um, I don't work with Reiki. I'm not working with other energy. I'm, what I'm doing is I'm helping you to understand how to move energy through your own body, because I truly believe in the power of self-healing. You're a facilitator. You're a facilitator. Exactly. So, which, you know, it's kind of like the proverb, you know, teach a man to fish, right? And so- so I'm there holding you and guiding you kind of through this process, and um, so that's why it works virtually just as effectively. The only thing that I prefer in person that's just kind of like the added fun, but it's not like, oh, in person is more effective than virtual. No, it's the exact same work, but I like to do some hands-on, you know, sensorial experience for clients in person, which is just kind of an added bonus, um, but it's not necessarily a more, you know, effective thing. It's just kind of more of the the bigger experience, but yeah, the way I do it, it's really just about guiding you through this experience. I play, you know, all different types of music to match the mood. And it's, it's a journey. I take you on, I facilitate and take you on a journey. (laughs) You do a lot of preparation and it's probably different for whoever you're helping, depending
0: on what's going on. It's always
1: personalized. It's always personalized my methodology is, um, fluid enough where it's like, we're not just doing the same thing for each person. It's, it's very personalized. And that's what I, yeah, I really appreciate about this healing. It gets to be creative. Right. And tell us about your rebirth retreat, my rebirth retreat. Um, yes. And I realized I actually didn't even address you. So my program, sensual self-love is a program for women. So if this work does excite you, um, I will say this particular one, sensual self-love isn't focused on grief. It's more focused on movement and the integration of being able to take care of yourself. So your inner masculine, your inner feminine, there's a lot of movement, a lot of kind of sensuality, we even address sexuality, you know, all this stuff. So it's a community of women. Um, The one, so then the rebirth. So yes, so this is this is a in-person, because I just moved to Oahu this year, there's a beautiful retreat center here that I am so excited to start welcoming people to next year. They're retreats that I have designed. Um, this one particularly is for women, but I think I will open it up probably to both men and women eventually, but this is called Rebirth of Venus. Oh and yeah, and it is um, that the Venus part is the four women part, the ones for men and women will probably just be rebirth. But um, this one is rebirth of Venus. And it's really about it's everything, grief, sensuality, movement. We're going to be working with the elements. We're going to be, you know, connecting with each other, learning how to move energy through the body. It's for absolutely any woman that is just ready to learn how to become the most powerful self-healer that she can be in the most beautiful part of the world.
0: (laughs) Oh, that these women bond like crazy in these retreats. Oh, yeah. Oh, my.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely.
0: (laughs) And I also know that you have programs that you offer for people preparing for the death of a loved one. And moving forward without them, which absolutely fascinates me. And I bet you there are people now perking up and saying, what's that about, Kate? So tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so this is this is my newest offering. Um, I actually just opened the doors up for this a few weeks ago. Um, so this is Calm Heart, inspired by the experience that I shared earlier with my father about Calm Heart. And how to use this as a mantra as a way to help in that moment um so but for the people so I, I recognize that some people will have the opportunity to prepare and then others you know kind of like your your experience Irene is like sometimes they're sudden and there's no preparation and it's just they're here and then they're not and so the, the container, it's a six month container and it's for both because, and I was kind of thinking about having them be two like the preparation and the after, but then I decided, no, you know what? Everyone's journey is so valuable and can inform each other's and, um, and to be able to really learn from each other. So, Essentially, this work is everything that I shared with you in here, bringing in spirituality, and it's not just Buddhism, right? It's really just any type of spirituality. Um, I work a lot with, because I'm familiar with Buddhist practices that are super helpful, but I've also worked a lot with Secular mindfulness and compassion education, and and just you know more secular.
0: Yeah, I mean you probably valley. get all kinds of <laughs> forms and all different kinds of religions. All of it, like everyone's welcome. Do? Okay, my husband's dying, <laughs> or my God forbid, whatever is going on. Yeah, and I will probably be in that hospital room or whatever. Yeah. can you help me? What do I do to enhance yeah. my experience? Actually, yeah. So help you know.
1: Yeah. I, well, I created a program of everything that I wish I had had, you know, I really wish I had had a community of people that get it because especially at 27, I remember finding this thing called the death cafe and I went and it just, the people were mostly older and had lost spouses. And so I it just didn't personally quite connect to it in the same way. And so I was like, gosh, I wish, you know, there was just somewhere I could connect to it for me more personally. Um, and so there's a community. So we meet every week. We meet every week for a 90 minute session. We is it a do, singular thing or it's a group of people that meet? The group. So it's a group of people. So it's a group. Yeah. It's a community. It's open enrollment, which means you can join at any time. You get a six month container. Um, and so it's the community aspect, but you also get access to me one on one because that was the other thing is in between the sessions. I remember with my grief counselor, I would have to wait a week, but as we know with grief, it just comes on spontaneously. spontaneously, And sometimes there's moments where you're like, I really need support in this moment. And so I'm available in between these sessions. And that felt really important to me. So and then, of course, it's going to, you know, accumulate into an in-person, optional in-person retreat on Oahu because he doesn't want to come to Oahu. <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> so, you know, and it's and all those things. Another thing I did want to specify is when we are in this early states of grief, even just the the work that I do with sensuality does feel a little bit too much. So we this isn't about we're not going to be dancing and moving um quite that quite that much on the weekly calls you do have access to my monthly virtual drop-in called moving emotion so if you do want to do that you can drop in once a month and do some movement practices um but most of the people it's more about somatic you know experience somatic experience somatic is processing versus doing the sensuality and the moving so i don't want I'm people to right. it because <laughs> it's not we're not like quite there yet you know people aren't quite there yet so i really want to make that distinction and this is also open for both women and men men
0: and, and you know we're talking about doing so much healing on a somatic level of trauma why is it important for people to heal that? Why shouldn't people just stay with all that trauma stuck in their bodies for the rest <laughs> of their lives? Why? Why are like the the whole purpose of this podcast is encourage to encourage people to do their healing work? Why? What is the Kate reason that people should do their healing
1: work? Of course, I wanted to say, well, you heard anything I've just said, and it doesn't sound good now. But but it's it's really I think what it really comes down to is you know there's there's life after grief. There's life with grief. There's grief. This is what I want to say. Grief the frequency of grief. Most people think oh grief is this yucky, horrible, heavy thing. And yes, that can be the experience, but if we think about it what's actually underneath grief is love. Grief is love, right? We wouldn't be feeling grief if we didn't feel love. right? You know, grief is different than depression. Certainly grief can turn into depression, but depression doesn't turn into grief. These are different experiences. The thing about grief that's so unique is that it's actually such a powerful energy because of its source in love that we... We're, we can never get rid of grief, right? We're never going to get rid of it. We just learn how to kind of package it and play with it. And what I like to say, repurpose it into something else. And so why... well, look, at you and me.
0: look what you're doing and look what I'm doing. We've both
1: exactly. repurposing it through helping exactly. others. Right. Like that's the only thing at the end This life, if, if we think that the end of life is really it's all about love, right? It's all about love. I hope you I hope if you take anything from this interview, just remember that the only thing that matters is love. And so if we can just work every day to finding how to match our frequency to the vibration of love, the quality of energy in our body, the quality of our mind, all about love in all of its different forms, then. Then we're going to live a happy life. So, when we carry these things like trauma and these painful emotions in our body, it's affecting our frequency of love. And of course, the thing that's going to heal those parts, though, the parts of us that are holding on to rage, right? Like, like I said, rage is a little kid or whatever, they're holding on to rage or jealousy or sadness and sorrow and all of these different. Uncomfortable emotions, the thing that's going to heal all of those is love, is self love, is taking care of ourselves, knowing how to meet our needs that weren't met when we were young or needs that we can't expect others to meet, that we have to learn how to meet on our own. And then, of course, also to find and surround people, surround us with people that know how to love us so that we can truly open, soften, and receive love. Right. Would you say that healing removes the blockages to love? Yes. yes. Right. That only thing that's blocking us from love are the barriers that we've created somatically. It makes total sense. Definitely to yeah. makes so much
0: sense. And how does your mantra find your wound, find your purpose lead to finding
1: joy? Yeah. Well, not much else as I've said, <laughs> not much else make sense in this life but finding love helping others and becoming an alchemist right transforming our wounds into wisdom and we're all looking for purpose right there's no one on this planet exempt from wanting to know we matter that we have a purpose and if we can't find out what that is this mantra of finding our wound is checking in of like, well, you know, they always ask kind of like in these big, like Apple and, you know, all these big companies, like, you know, well, what's the problem? What's the problem, right? We start with like, well, what's the problem in the world and how can we fix it? Right. We're trying to think of it. If you want to think of it from a logical mind, like what's the problem and how do we fix it? Well, we can tune in with ourselves and go, okay, what's the problem? How do we fix it? And knowing that that's going to make all the difference is when we are able to be free and to alchemize that. And that's going to help us connect to purpose, to our purpose. That's beautiful.
0: <laughs> it sounds like the bottom line to everything is to uh, free yourself so that you can
1: love. Yes. Right. The foundation. Yeah. Well, and to bring it the full circle. What that moment when I saw love in the foundation of the burnt house, beautiful. it was that love is always there, no matter what, no matter the disasters that happen, love is the foundation of everything.
0: That is beautiful. That is Even beautiful. You can't see it. That is beautiful. <laughs> Kate, wow, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for encouraging people through dance and movement and through who you are truly, to heal and find the unshakable love at the core of their beings. Thank you for being the incredible role model that you are for grief and rebirth. And I thank you from my heart for this insightful and fascinating and wonderful and heartwarming interview today. And here's a loving reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes in all Grief and Re- and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social app at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And if you're watching here on YouTube, be sure to click, click subscribe below so you'll never miss an episode. I want to give you a, a real heartfelt thank you so much, Kate. And as I like to say, to be continued, many blessings and bye for now.